And so that resulted in social unrest or it contributed to the social unrest in July. And so that is really one of the key examples that we have, you know, a living case study for what can happen when people are not included in the economy. What do we choose to prioritize? What does the government choose to prioritize? The question of affordability of the grant and how it could be financed and whether there's fiscal space to finance it. And that's an important question. But what we wanted to do in this paper was to look beyond this question a little bit to add some richness to the debate that we're having in South Africa about EUBIG. This year's research project on basic income supports in South Africa comes in response to the government's proposal that the Social Relief of Distress Grant will be replaced by an alternative form of household support. It is known that targeted basic income support increases welfare in the economy. But how is a universal basic income grant different? And what redistributive impact would this have on the high inequality levels in South Africa? The research we are discussing today reviews evidence and literature on the impact of a universal basic income on interconnected social and economic drivers of poverty in South Africa. We will explore why a universal basic income as a policy cannot be isolated, but ought to be coordinated with other policies addressing employment and growth in the economy. I'm your host, Margot G, and with us today are the authors of this paper, Kelly Hausen and Zimbali Mwebe from the Institute for Economic Justice. Welcome to Earth's podcast series. It is an absolute pleasure to have you both with us here today. Thanks, Margot. Thank it's a pleasure to be here. Welcome. Susan Valley, let me start off by asking you, why do you consider a universal basic income grant as opposed to a targeted one? Is there not evidence to show that a targeted basic income would be better at the margin? What do you mean by universal basic income in South Africa? Thanks. So let me start with the, the second question. What do we mean by a universal basic income grant in South Africa? We have a, a number of elements according to which we define what is a UBIC. And those mean that it's universal, which means that it applies to everyone. It's basic, which means that it's income that is necessary to survive. And it's income, it's a cash transfer rather than a, a voucher or other mechanisms to provide support and it's a guarantee which means that there is assurance that everyone will be provided it as a right so if it is fully realized a UBIG will ensure that all persons between the eligible ages of 18 and 59 years old receive this grant right and in the process those that are better off or wealthy would be the net contributors whilst those that in the low income would be the net beneficiaries. And this would be done through a progressive taxation, right? And then you have a targeted bake, which is basically an attempt to, which is basically attempting to select and identify the benefits of a bake to a particular subgroup. And this could be those that are unemployed, or those that are below a certain income threshold, right? And you see that in the South African context, the SRD grant 
was one of the latest example of a targeted grant and it specifically targeted those that are below an income threshold of 350 and are unemployed right and so people who argue for targeting do so because they say that it's cost efficient and so it distributes limited resources to the poorest of the poor which is the population that is said to need the grant right but also it's linked to arguments of avoiding cultivating a culture of dependence and in our view this is what we say in the paper to say there are key challenges with targeting and i'll just mention a few one of the key flaws of targeting is that the specific group that is supposed to reach it, whether it's those who are unemployed or those who are below certain income level it does not actually translate to reaching them in practice and this is because there are administrative burdens and and also goals right towards identifying who is actually unemployed we know that in south africa we don't actually have a database of those who are unemployed and those who are employed and the, the labor market is quite precarious and so it would be administratively burdensome to you know pinpoint the eligible recipients in that particular case another risk is that it creates new forms of social exclusion right which means that um, it has a, a high exclusion rate those that are supposed to receive the grant end up not getting the grant right on the other hand, universality, it, it actually ensures that everyone receives the, the grant and therefore builds social cohesion. It also improves psychological well-being and generates increased political support for the policy. And this is, these are some of the issues that we'll touch on later on in this discussion. Yes. So what type of infrastructure would then be required if we were to roll this out universally? I think it would require, first of all, a, an agency that is capable of identifying which people are eligible, right? If we were to, to say it's eligible to people who are previously not participated in, in the labor market and so on. And so that's the type of infrastructure and databases, right, which we currently, they were using the UIF databases which were outdated and so could not identify whether people were in employment, out of employment, and so on. And so at this present moment, the SRD was rolled out when it was, the earlier iteration was rolled out. It didn't require the targeting measures. It didn't require much of the narrow means testing. And so it was much more easier to reach people. Right, and so uh, this was used through mobile devices and so on. And so I think there would be, there would, in order for us to reach even people who are in rural areas, we would need to improve our, our post offices, which have been a, an obstacle to you know, delivering grants to people that are in rural areas who do not have access to cell phones and technology. And so we would need infrastructure that is available across all parts of the country and can reach different people in different places. Marco, I, th I just to yeah. add a little bit onto that question, if I can, sure. I think it's the important point to make that universality or a universal grant that everybody is eligible for is much 
easier to administer than a targeted grant, right? A targeted grant requires all kinds of enforcement and policing mechanisms where the state has to determine people's level of income month to month, whether people are unemployed or employed month to month. And in a context like South Africa, where we have a huge informal labor market and people constantly moving into and out of work, it's it's very difficult to draw that line. And that requires a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, as Mbali said, it, it ends up being often inaccurate. So people who are in need of support get excluded by for whatever reason. So by contrast, a universal grant is much easier to administer and much less expensive in, in terms of the, the you know, resources that are needed and the capacity that's needed within the bureaucracy. And it also cuts down on possibilities for for fraud in the administration of that grant as well. Yes. So those indirect costs, I think, are often overlooked. So it's, it's very interesting mm-hmm. to see the net effect of how that comes into play. Now, if we look at how this could be funded, this is a big question. And I know, Zimbali, you just mentioned that it would be funded with the progressive tax system in a way. But in the research, you make it clear that this is not part of the research mm-hmm. question. So, Kelly, could you tell us what assumptions you make about what is required for a universal basic income support to be implemented? Sure. Look, we, we certainly don't shy away from the fact that the cost, the upfront cost to the government of a universal basic income grant would be significant. And it would entail, you know, a rebalancing of of the taxation system. We would need new redistributive measures to be put in place. Those things need to be carefully managed. They need to be phased in and they do carry their own risks and externalities. But this is where a lot of the debate is focused in South Africa at the moment. The question of affordability of the grant and how it could be financed and whether there's fiscal space to finance it. And that is a very, you know, that's an important question. But what we wanted to do in this paper was to look beyond this question a little bit to add some some richness to the debate that we're having in South Africa about a UBIG. So we said, okay, look, when with this paper, we're going to assume that a UBIG is feasible, that it's affordable. And we think that that's a reasonable assumption. There are so many proposals out there for financing mechanisms that are, you know, that are achievable that the government could put in place to fund a UBIG. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there have been, there's a lot of back and forth critique of the detail of different financing proposals. The IEJ has put forward proposals for 18 possible financing measures for a UBIG. But we have said with this paper, okay, we're not going to engage with this particular question. And instead, we're going to assume that a UBIG is affordable. And we're going to then look beyond that to say, if it is implemented, what will its impacts be? But to some extent, obviously, the question of what its impacts will be depend on how it's financed. So we can't 
we can't wholly overlook this question. And what we find in the paper is the the impacts that we want to see, which are, you know, a reduction in structural poverty, reduction in hunger, a reduction in inequality, and a number of other social impacts. These impacts are more likely if the UBIG is funded progressively. And what we mean by that is funded through new taxation measures that, as Zimbalia said, redistribute a little bit of wealth from the very wealthiest in South Africa to support the incomes of the poorest. There are other options on the table that that other organisations have put forward that are not progressive financing measures. We would call them regressive, which means increasing forms of tax that hurt poor people more or or that that hit poor people the hardest or that poor people disproportionately contribute to. And these would be things like increasing VAT or, I mean, that's the main one. So if you increase VAT to fund a UBIG, you're offsetting the positive benefits of the UBIG in terms of poverty alleviation. I can I can go yeah, on, but maybe I should stop there. <laughs> No, of course, it's, it's great to hear. And I think when you mentioned that there's other proposals for 18 various financing mechanisms as to how this could be done, I feel like this would be another podcast in the making. So I will keep my eyes closed. Yes, yeah, absolutely. We, we've, um, we've got a lot <laughs> we can talk about there. Yeah, definitely. And it's great that we look at this from a perspective that's broader than the mere affordability. And if we look at the research title, it talks about breaking structural poverty. Simbali, what is meant by this? Yeah, so so most of the time when people speak about poverty, they speak about it as, as often understood and measured by a lack of income right, at an individual or household level. And this would be relative to a national poverty threshold that is set. We know status they usually has the different poverty lines. And so people would be classified as falling below or above a certain threshold to understand poverty. And in this paper, we, we acknowledge the importance of the statistical you know, approach insofar as it allows us to to monitor poverty across space and and time and and to see in terms of income what are the levels that are sufficient for people to survive but then it it doesn't account for for the multifaceted drivers and outcomes of poverty which are often linked to the context of where people are right and and the history and and which is 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 what we are interested in in this paper we don't really look at poverty as a subjective or individual experience that is detached from the context but rather try to look at what are the wider socioeconomic conditions right that drive yeah. that poverty right what are the structural and historic variations that we need to take into account when we look at poverty and and these are these are what we think are the structural issues that underpin or lead to persistence of poverty and these issues are, are not only linked to income but also access to housing access to mm-hmm. health education and a number of issues and so people 
experience poverty as an overlapping of these sets of measures. And so I think when we approached this paper, we wanted to look at how could a, a UBIC contribute to breaking structural poverty in South Africa, which we know is legacy of racial inequality and wealth inequality along race, gender, and so on. And so this is why it's also important to see the UBIC as only one of the interventions that can address our poverty alongside quality public health care, alongside quality education, and, and so on. Yes, and what I found very interesting with how you worded it in the paper is you speak about it being self-reproducing phenomenon. So there's definitely a, you could call it a generational impact or a, it's a long-term issue that it's almost entrenched within these systems. And it's, it's an interesting question as to why do these things persist for so long? And in the paper, you go into so much detail regarding how a universal basic income can impact structural poverty in both the short term as well as the long term through various multipliers. And for our listeners, I cannot recommend strongly enough how much you should go into this paper. It is so easy to follow and read. What would you say are the three biggest misconceptions about a universal basic income? And what myths did this research bust? Kelly, let's start with you. Sure. Well, I would like to think that we're out here busting myths, but I, unfortunately <laughs> there are a lot of myths that persist and they seem very entrenched and embedded despite a lot of evidence, of international evidence about the impact of basic income initiatives and cash transfer initiatives. And when we use basic income and cash transfer, we essentially mean the same thing. Programs where governments or other organizations have given cash support to people over a certain period of time. So we take evidence from these kinds of initiatives all over the world in the paper to better understand the impact of basic income support and then to extrapolate the potential impact of universal basic income in South Africa. And in the process, we do, we do kind of test some of the common myths and misconceptions, a lot of the common narratives that we hear in South Africa about basic income support. So one of those that we hear a lot, including from people, you know, including from decision makers in, in government, is that providing social grants, providing social protection will encourage people to basically be lazy, right? Be dependent mm -hmm. on the state, to be content with taking from society and not giving back. And that has been well and truly dis disproved by the international evidence. So there's a lot of research that's been done on this question. Do people withdraw from the labor market if they get a social grant or if they get support from government? And it's, it's overwhelmingly shown to not be the case. So there's been some research in South Africa that shows that people who receive grants are still highly motivated to work and that the biggest barrier to working is a lack of available jobs. Our labor market just doesn't create enough jobs and that's a structural problem. That's not the fault of, of individuals who aren't able to find jobs. And then that's supported by research from 
industrial psychology, which shows that people's motivations to work and to contribute to their communities are complex and they're driven by social factors things like a sense of self-fulfillment, wanting to improve one's skills, wanting to wanting to give back and contribute to, to your community. So when people receive social protection, their motivation to work doesn't go down. And then there's a lot of evidence that shows that social protection can help people overcome barriers to participating in economic activity. So the biggest barrier for people in South Africa who are living below the, the food poverty line to going out and searching for a job is just poverty. It's a lack of cash. There was some research done that shows that it costs on average 938 rand a month to search for a job in South Africa. That was in 2019. So that was before inflation. And we know from government figures that there are 18.3 million people living below the food poverty line of 624 rand per month. So that really puts, puts it in perspective. And we also know that people have often used social grant money, including the, the SRD grant, to fund or to contribute to the cost of job search, things like airtime, transport, etc. And then we also present a lot of evidence in the paper from, from international examples that shows that people, when people receive social protection, they often use it to increase their self-employment or to invest in productive activities or to start enterprises. So, so this kind of income support helps people to begin to participate in the economy. There was an example in Namibia where when people received a you know, a modest level of basic income support people in a, in a deprived community. As a result of that, self-employment income increased by 300%. And so oh. I think we, we can expect to see similar results in deprived areas of South Africa where people are suddenly empowered and given the agency to improve their economic position and because of this effect, there's often a what's called an income multiplier attributed to to basic income support, where people's incomes increase at a higher rate than the level of the income support. So, so that grows local economies and it can help people get into jobs. That's only one of the myths that I hope this paper has contributed to busting. Um, wow. But definitely a significant one. And when you talk about the income multiplier, those are going to be long-term effects, which will then roll out and help some of these structural exactly. issues as more enterprises start, we can create more employment yeah. and hopefully alleviate the structural inequality. Yes. And just to add one brief point to that, which is to understand the question of affordability to truly understand the question of affordability we have to understand these income multiplier effect and the potential impact mm -hmm. of a of a ubi on economic growth because that economic growth flows back into government revenue through tax and it ends up actually significantly yes. reducing the net cost of a UBIG because the UBIG stimulates yes. the economy it increases government revenue and that contributes offsets the cost of the UBIG itself.
Wow. It almost sounds too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool, actually, when, when we think about it holistically. And the paper also goes into so many benefits of a UVIC in detail. And I strongly recommend to our listeners reading the paper and absorbing all of these things. Some of them that stood out for me were also interesting things like reducing depression and cortisol levels, as well as reducing violence in an economy, to issues like improving child nutrition. And once again, that would have long-term implications because it could boost the resilience of people when they are older and their productivity. And then also looking at self-employment in rural areas, which you also touched on, Kelly. Simbali, what stood out to you as being one of the biggest benefits of the universal basic income? And what would the long-term impact of that be? I think two issues stood out for me. Firstly was the, the impact of UBIG on the long-term benefits of, you know, improving bargaining power for workers as well as its impact on, on health and nutrition, particularly for children, like you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the points that is ignored when people speak about jobs as a counterpoint to a UBIC is that there are people who are working in South Africa, but they are working in jobs that are not protected in terms of the legislation, but also have poor and exploitative conditions. One of the studies that was done, which we speak about in the paper, estimates that approximately one quarter of the people in South Africa are working poor, right? And they fall below the poverty line, right? And most of those people are women, right? And so when we speak about a UPIC, if everyone gets it, including those that are the working poor, it has the potential to provide workers with a bargaining power that they can use to withhold their labor, you know. But it also allows them to have the opportunity to look for other jobs which have protection but also offer a better quality to enable them to, to sustain themselves. And so this leads to, in the long run, improved working conditions for workers in the economy, right? And yes. so one of the evidence we've consulted, although it's limited in the context of South Africa, shows that the bargaining power improves significantly where AUPIC is implemented. But there's also a number of factors that are important in this respect. And it, one of the, the factors, I'll mention three. One is that it, the value of the grant needs to be sufficient to provide workers with, with enough security for them to exit condition. The second one is that there needs to be labor regulations and enforcement, you know, like the, the a decent minimum and protection of collective bargaining rights, which would work, you know, and complementary to the UPEC. And then the third point is that it has to be universal and unconditional, which is one of the points that we started on. It doesn't have to have conditions, you know, on the recipients that get the grant in order for them to seek, in order for them to seek better working conditions. So it doesn't have to compel them to particular work conditions. So that gives workers a choice, you know, to assess based on their living and their 
the minimum conditions that they need to survive, what would be the best form of work, but also wages that they would require. And so I think for me, one that that's one of the key points, I think, that is often ignored when we speak about the impacts of a UBIC and we, we, we pit it against jobs and, and work and so on. Yes, and when you speak about the bargaining power of workers, I think we often overlook that band of workers that are earning that amount where, because they are just so desperate for that income, put up with so much difficulty at work. And so if they have that comfort or that, that security through the universal basic income, it will really improve their quality of life and allow them so much more freedom in reaching their potential. Now, one thing that came to mind as you were speaking, Zimbali, is back to the universality. Is there an age threshold where it begins? What happens to children? Where do they, would they qualify? So yeah, people under well, 18, for example. So in South Africa, we currently do have a grant system that is, is wide reaching for those that are below the age of 18 and okay. those that are above the age of, of, of 59. So that's okay. the old age grant. And then for those that are below would be the, the, the child social grant, right? And, okay. and there's also an, an additional one that they introduced for double offense. And so currently the excluded population are those that are between the ages of 18 and 59. And so this is why it's imperative to introduce the grant to cover those people as is required in the constitution. Okay. So leading on from what you said about the threshold that we could say makes it worthwhile, this is to zone into some of the details. Kelly, what do you know about the optimal size of a universal basic income grant? What is the minimum that recipients should receive in order to have the maximum benefits? Mm. Could we put a cost on this for sure. government? Yeah. So I hesitate to say. Bearing in mind the crazy inflation yes. we are entering into <laughs> yes, globally. Yes. Look, I hesitate to say that if the grant is too low, we should forget about it. You know, I think any any amount is can be beneficial, but there are important caveats to that. And one is what Zimbali was just saying about if the grant is too low, it could have the effect of, of trapping people into a poverty trap if it doesn't provide them with the agency to improve their livelihood, improve their economic position, and they don't have any other options in the labor market, then we might see people being being kind of trapped in, in a welfare dependency trap. And I think we do have some guidelines in South Africa to help us in assessing the level of need, how much income people need to meet their, their basic needs. And those are the national poverty lines. So the lowest national poverty line is the food poverty line or what's also called the extreme poverty line. And that measures how much money people, an individual needs over a month to meet their basic nutritional needs, to, to eat enough food, basically. Mm -hmm. 
And that is currently set at 624 Rand per month. And then there's the upper bound poverty line below which you are considered to be living in poverty. So if your income is below 1,335 Rand per month, you're considered to be living in poverty. You can't meet all of your basic needs, even though you might be able to meet your basic food needs. You can't meet the other essentials that you need. So these provide us, yeah, exactly. These provide us with a good gauge of the level that a grant might need to be set at to actually ensure that it is a basic income. And what IEJ has advocated for is something that is phased in. So increase the time to eventually reach the level of the upper bound poverty line. So that means that it eliminates poverty, which is a crazy thing to say, but a universal basic income grant pegged to the level of the upper bound poverty line would eliminate poverty in South Africa by definition. But that's quite ambitious, you know, that that would carry quite a high gross cost. So we've suggested that in the immediate term, we should introduce a grant at the food poverty line, which eliminates hunger in South Africa. And that's currently 624 Rand a month. You know, that still carries quite a high outright price tag. I think, Zimbali, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if we saw universal uptake of a grant at the value of the food poverty line, that would cost approximately 255 billion. But it's important... There are a couple of things to bear in mind when we talk about this figure. One is that international experience shows us that not everybody would opt in to receive the grant. So at the outset, we would we can estimate that we would see about 60% of eligible people opting in to receive the grant and that that would increase to about 80% and kind of stabilize at 80% because the you know, there's a certain group of the population who have enough income that the that the UBIG wouldn't, you know, make a big difference for them and they're, they're unlikely to opt into it. So that decreases the gross cost. Okay. And then there's also the, the effect that I discussed earlier of the economic stimulus, economic growth, that would also go, go some way to decreasing the, the gross cost of the UBIG. But just to say that those national poverty lines are set by Statistics South Africa. They're a scientific objective method measure of poverty. And so it makes a lot of sense to use these as a guide. And they're also increased over time, accounting for things like inflation. They're based on real prices in the economy. So as inflation continues to Mm -hmm. rise, the value of the grant is pegged to those poverty lines, which account for inflation. Okay, is a significant cost, but like we were saying initially or earlier on, it is something that as soon as the long-term effects start to settle in or the multipliers, it will take that burden off the government and it will sustain itself in a way, which is quite a beautiful yeah, look, we, we don't, you know, we wouldn't suggest that it fully sustains itself. You know, it is it is a new and significant budget line <laughs> and, and we don't want to kind of play that down too much. It's not cheap, 
but I, I think it's also important to think about the, the question of affordability as the question of competing priorities. What do we choose to prioritize? What does the government choose to prioritize? Right now, they're choosing to prioritize mm. paying down debt faster than they need to, which is, which is coming at the expense of, of people living with dignity, people being able to eat. So the government can choose to prioritize taking care of people's basic needs now. And this, this can help to have a long-term structural transformative impact. Can I add there? Yes. A point that which is sometimes ignored is that it's, it's, it, it's a cost, but it's also an mm. investment, right? It's a long investment into human capital. It's a long-term investment into ensuring that people can actively participate in the economy and there is no economy without people. And so when we look at it only as a cost, then we run the risk of ignoring some of these very important long-term benefits to the economy and just to yeah. human dignity, you know? Yes, and it's, it's an interesting thing, human dignity, because we have a right to it in our constitution, yet to actually define it completely and know exactly what it is. We, we sort of know what it is, but it's hard to define in many ways. And mm. this would definitely help with mm. that. So another point I thoroughly enjoyed was that universality changes the perspective towards inclusion. And then go on to say, and encourages democratic participation. In light of the current economic environment post the pandemic, where South Africa is very fractionalized, could you tell us more about how a universal basic income grant in South Africa would encourage democratic participation? Zimbali, let's start with you. So the evidence in the paper, what it shows is that in countries where a UBIC has been implemented or there's been a pilot, there's been an increase in the trust in, in the leadership. Uh, and this has occurred in Tanzania. There's been a lower crime, particularly in Namibia. And this is linked to the idea of social coercion, where people have shared loyalty, solidarity in their society, right? And we think that this is linked to income support, right? Because when people have a stake in society and they can participate in the economy and they are not excluded, that results in them working towards, you know, the betterment of that society and trusting the democratic institutions of participations and so on that are set up there. And so... Basically, the key idea here is that a UBIC allows people to be included and participate in the economy. And in that fosters social cohesion over long, the long term. And I think a, a good example we saw of this was the July unrest, whereby, of course, there were other political factors yes. linked to it. But then at the time, there was a, the SRD grant was had expired and there was no form of amidst a lockdown where people couldn't, you know, seek alternative forms of, of livelihoods. And so that resulted in social unrest or it contributed to the social unrest in July. 
And so that is really one of the key examples that we have, you know, a living case study for what can happen when people are not included in the economy and how a UBIC or a form of, of income support can support economic participation but also foster long-term social cohesion. Like Kelly said, if we can sit it at a level that alleviates hunger, we would then eliminate a lot of frustration within the population. It would reduce the amount of social unrest, I'm sure. So despite the efforts to be inclusive in the past, there has been an element of structural exclusion in our economy. From a policy perspective, you raise a very interesting relationship between inclusion or exclusion and growth. Could you tell us more about this and how economic policy ought to incorporate these findings? Kelly, let's start with you. Sure. Look, I, I think it's important to preface this by saying I'm a social scientist. You know, I'm not an economist by training. So this is how I see things through a sociological lens. Yes. But to me, this is a no-brainer. In order to get people into jobs, we need to grow the economy. So we need to subsidize business. We need to enable entrepreneurship. And then this will get people into jobs. But as Zimbali said, the economy is people. There's no economy that kind of exists above our heads in the sky that isn't, you know, that, that's this difficult to understand and ethereal thing. The economy is people undertaking transactions, undertaking work, undertaking consumption, undertaking spending. So what I've tried to argue in the paper is that it makes much more sense to see growth as a function of inclusion. The more people we can include in our economy, the more likely we are to get growth. So exclusion weighs down growth, whereas inclusion promotes growth. And are there ways that we can think about to include people first in order to spark that growth? And I think that the, we can see the UBIC as a way of including people and getting economic growth as a result. It allows people to access the opportunities that exist. Right now, we hear a lot about the, the problem of an overburdened and shrinking tax base. So sometimes people respond to proposals for a UBIG by saying, who's going to pay for it? The, the number of taxpayers in this country are shrinking and they're already taxed too heavily. And I can understand why people have that reaction. But how then do we grow the tax base? How then do we get more you know, a greater proportion of people in this country paying income tax, consuming, spending, contributing to that. And the way that we do that is to include them first. So yes, right now there is a, you know, there, there is a proportionately kind of small tax base, but we see this as a way of expanding that tax base, including people to grow the economy. Yes. And as you've been Eluding exclusion is very expensive and inherently quite unjust. Yeah. And I guess in terms of broadening the tax base, we can also look at it from a perspective of making South Africa an attractive place for people to stay, both for South Africans that were born here, but also for foreigners who want to come and invest and stimulate growth and many passionate foreigners who 
feel like South Africa is their home because we have such a warm culture, if we can create an environment for everybody to stay and invest, that would that would be wonderful. Yeah, I mean, as you can probably tell, I'm I'm not originally from South Africa, so so I'm one of those. And I'm only too pleased to have you here. <laughs> Where are you from, Kelly? <laughs> Thank you. I'm from New Zealand originally. I'm married to a South African these days. Wonderful. Okay. Yes, but you've touched on something that I think is important, which is a lot of people say, if we increase tax to fund a UBIG, we're going to see an acceleration in immigration. You know, wealthy people are going to take their money and leave. And I think that that's one, it's, it's alarmist and scaremongering, and it's not true because a lot of people have a lot of reasons to be here beyond you know what they're paying in tax beyond their their kind of pure rational economic position but I think it's also an impoverished and short-term perspective which and and ultimately if you unpack that argument what it's saying is we shouldn't do anything differently Mm. and you know if you look at the crisis that we're in now I don't understand how anybody can possibly make that argument clearly we have to do something differently and it has to be bold and you know and it is going to come with its own possible risks which we actually think are much lower than have been you know than have been kind of alleged but it's going to require some kind of maybe not always comfortable changes but ultimately in the long run it has positive benefits for everyone it has positive benefits across the whole economy and and yeah but I'm I'll leave it there yeah I think in, in the interest of time it's I, I know I could chat for hours but in the interest of time I think let's stop it there and uh before we continue, Zimbali, is there anything else you would like to add? Just more broadly on the UBIG issue to say that we really need, you know, political leadership in the country to step up, you know, and work with the different social forces from researchers like us who are doing the to mass mobilizers on the ground who are really spreading the word about the potential impact of a a you big but also taking people's stories about how the little that has been provided through the SRD has made a difference and so it's really a question of merging the evidence that is available and the stories that are available the real stories are from the people and then you know following up with a political will to implement a sustainable solution one of the sustainable solutions to alleviating hunger poverty and unemployment in the country that would be my last point thank you so much reading this paper was very refreshing and it allowed us to envision outcomes beyond certain economic constraints that we also often hear about such as you mentioned, Kelly, a shrinking tax base and this high fiscal debt and rather using evidence to tackle structural poverty in a way that current policy has failed to do. Thank you so much, both of you, for shedding light on this topic and sharing this great research, which is wonderful to read. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you for having Thanks so much, Margot. It's, it's been great. Thank you. We certainly need to incorporate these key findings into policy going forward. 
And to our listeners, if you have something you would like to know more about, these authors have kindly put together an annotated bibliography which reveals a treasure chest of knowledge. You can find that on our website as well as their research, which is posted as a discussion document. Thank you again. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our social media platforms on LinkedIn and Twitter. This is your host, Margot G from the Ursa podcast series. Till next time.